Hello, welcome to this episode of the Citation Podcast. My name is Jill McAteer and I'm Director of Employment Law at Citation. I'm joined by my colleague Kat Hare, who is one of our professional support lawyers. In this episode, we'll be looking at the duty to make reasonable adjustments. With many employers struggling to manage employees' long-term health issues, we'll be discussing how to get this right. Kat, can we perhaps first start off by explaining what do we mean when we say the duty to make reasonable adjustments? Yeah, thanks for that, Jill. Um, The duty can arise where a disabled person is placed at a substantial disadvantage by an employer's provision criterion or practice, a physical feature of the employer's premises, or an employer's failure to provide an auxiliary aid. Now, this is quite a complex area of the law, and we'll go through each stage of this duty to make adjustments um, throughout the podcast. And when is the duty to make reasonable adjustments actually triggered? So if an employee or a job applicant meets the definition of disability in the Equality Act 2010, then the law requires an employer to make reasonable adjustments in order to reduce or remove a substantial disadvantage. So you referred there to the uh, definition of disability in the Equality Act, and I think this is something employers often find confusing. So perhaps we can clear that up first. What is considered to be a disability under the Equality Act? Of course, yeah, it can be quite confusing. So an employer only has to make a reasonable adjustment where they know or could reasonably be expected to know that an individual is a disabled person. Now, disability is defined in the Equality Act, um, and the definition is um, a physical or mental impairment which has a substantial and long-term adverse effect on a person's ability to carry out normal day-to-day activities. So it is quite, again, quite a complex definition Um, and one that is examined by the tribunals um, in cases of disability discrimination. Now, physical or mental impairment can include sensory impairments such as sight or hearing. Um, And of course, the effect must be substantial, which reflects the general understanding of disability as a limitation going beyond the normal differences in ability which might exist amongst, amongst people generally. So you've referred there to long term. Uh, What is considered to be long term? Well, long term would be an impairment that's lasted at least 12 months or a total period which lasts from the time of the first onset um, to to progress to 12 months or the rest of that person's life. now, 12 months is, is again, is, is something that a tribunal will decide and they'll look at an, whether an impairment is likely to last for 12 months or the rest of the person's life um, and likely should be interpreted as meaning that it could well happen. Um, I think it's also interesting that um, if somebody has a condition which, um, for example, like epilepsy, which is a sporadic condition, um, which has a substantial adverse effect but has now ceased to do so, it will be tra- treated as continuing um, if it's likely to reoccur. Also, um, illnesses such as cancer, HIV and multiple sclerosis are all considered to be a disability for the purposes of the Equality Act as well. So as an employer, does that mean that if my employee has suffered a condition for less than 12 months, they won't qualify as being disabled? I think it would be sensible, Gillian, for employers to consult an occupational health advisor about an individual's health condition and understand if the condition would be long-term and substantial and have an impact on their ability to carry out day-to-day activities. 
However, the Court of Appeal case um, of Gallup against Newport City Council is a warning to employers not to unthinkingly rely or follow an occupational health report. And in that case, the Court of Appeal said that whilst occupational health or other medical advice may be helpful, a responsible employer must ultimately apply its own mind to the test in deciding whether an employee is disabled under discrimination legislation. An employer can't simply rubber stamp a medical advisor's opinion that an employee is not disabled. And I think this again comes down to thinking about the questions that you ask an occupational health advisor if you do refer an individual to be examined by them and make sure you ask specific practical questions so they can assist you as an employer in determining if that individual is disabled but also think about any reasonable adjustments that could be made to their role. Now the duty itself applies not just to employees but also to job applicants who meet the definition of being disabled. Does that mean that there is a duty to make reasonable adjustments during the recruitment process itself? Yes, it's really important to remember that the duty can be triggered long before there's an actual employment relationship. So it's unlawful for an employer to discriminate against a person in the arrangements the employer makes for deciding who they're going to offer employment to, um, or the terms on which the employer offers a person employment, or indeed by not offering a person employment. Um, There have been cases on this point. One that springs to mind um, is where a candidate who had Asperger's syndrome asked for the recruitment process to be amended so she didn't have to complete the multiple choice questions and instead provide a written response to the answers. Um, This request was rejected by the employer and that was found to be a failure to make reasonable adjustments so that's a real cautionary tale. Most employers are aware though that they can't ask questions about health before they've given an offer of employment. So how would they know if an adjustment is needed? I mean, during the recruitment process, the employer may need to ask health-related questions or request a medical report to establish if, for example, an individual is fit to attend an interview um, or any assessment or if there's any adjustments that may be needed. Um, It might also be um, prudent to understand if they need to make um, any adjustments if they were to be offered the role. And also to understand if the individual has a disability as a genuine occupational requirement. So, for example, an organisation for deaf people might legitimately employ a deaf person who uses British Sign Language to work as a counsellor to other deaf people who'd preferred languages BSL. But I think our advice would be, if you are going to be asking um, health questions, you need to make sure that it's justified um, and that it's only where necessary. So if we look a bit closer at the duty, which is set out in the Equality Act at Section 20, it refers to a disabled person being placed at a substantial disadvantage by an employer's provision, criterion or practice, a physical feature of the employer's premises or an employer's failure to provide an auxiliary aid. Can you give us an example of a physical feature which would place an individual at a substantial disadvantage? Yes, so uh, some examples of a physical feature um, of an employer's premises which would put an individual at that substantial disadvantage may be something like having clear glass doors at the end of a corridor because, of course, that would put those with a sight impairment at a substantial disadvantage. Thinking about auxiliary aids, where a disabled person would but for the provision of auxiliary aid be put at a substantial disadvantage in compared with those who are not disabled, the employer must take steps, as is reasonable, to have to take to provide the auxiliary aid. So, for example, 
providing support or assistance to a disabled person via an adapted keyboard or text-to-speech text software would be appropriate. And then we look at this provision criterion or practice or PCP as it's sometimes known, is not defined in law, which means it's regularly argued in courts. PCP is broad to include workplace practices, and there has been an interesting case, which again springs to mind, where an expectation, rather than a strict requirement for an employee to work long hours, was a PCP. This was a practice by the employer, which would mean that the duty to make reasonable adjustments would be triggered, and it was found that this expectation that long hours would be work worked placed a disabled employee at a substantial disadvantage. Now any PCP of the employer that puts a disabled person at a substantial disadvantage in comparison with persons who are not disabled means that the employer must take steps as is reasonable to have to take to avoid that practice. This is a positive obligation provided employers have the knowledge and there is a reasonable step that can be taken. Tribunals are really keen to nail down a PCP at an early stage and tribunals do tend to give a wide interpretation to provision criterion or practice, as we've seen from the case law. Could a one-off decision amount to a PCP? I think that's really interesting, Gillian, because would it be a practice if it's a one-off decision? And, and it's probably likely, I would say, that a one-off managerial decision would not amount to provision criterion or practice. However, if there's some continuation of it, for example, in a manager's thought process, or if a manager says, well, actually, I would have made the same decision again, then actually it may very well end up to be a practice and fall within, within the definition of PCP. But like anything in this really complex area, it will all turn on the facts of the case. You've mentioned substantial disadvantage a few times. How is this measured? I mean, is there a definition contained in the Equality Act? Yes, there is a definition in the Equality Act, and it's defined as something more than minor or trivial, which again is something that, that would be determined by a tribunal. It's a subjective test and, and can be quite wide. So, for example, a failure to promote someone could be classed as a substantial disadvantage. Whether an individual has been substantially disadvantaged in comparison to a person without that disability is a question of fact for the tribunal to determine. Obviously, if there is a substantial disadvantage, then an employer must make a reasonable adjustment, and the aim of the adjustment the employer makes is to remove or reduce that substantial disadvantage. It's also really interesting, Gillian, to note that there is no duty to make reasonable adjustments where an employer doesn't know or could not reasonably be expected to know that the individual concerned has that disability. So an employer may try to avoid, avoid liability if they say they didn't know the person was disabled, but employers will not avoid the duty where they did not know, but should reasonably have known about the individual's disability and the substantial disadvantage. So the Equality and Human Rights Commission Code advises the employers that they must do all they can reasonably expected to do to find out this information Although it emphasises that when making inquiries about disability, employers should consider issues of dignity and privacy and ensure that personal information is dealt with confidentially. There is a two-stage test um, which was determined by the Employment Appeals Tribunal when understanding this, this position on knowledge, on the employer's knowledge. And the two questions are, did the employer know that the employee was disabled and that his disability was liable to disadvantage him substantially? And ought the employer to have known that the employee was disabled and that his disability was liable to disadvantage him substantially? If the answer to both questions is no, then the duty to make reasonable adjustments did not arise. 
However, if the employer has the knowledge of the disability or ought to have known about the disability, then there is a positive obligation to make the reasonable adjustment, provided that there is a reasonable step that can be taken. Well, at the heart of this is a word that is liberally used throughout employment law and causes many employers problems, and that is the word reasonable. Um, What does reasonable look like? Well, again, it's something that's quite subjective um, and tribunal will look, for example, at the cost of an adjustment along with the financial and resources available to the employer and that will be relevant as to whether the adjustment would be reasonable. But again, the Equality and Human Rights Commission code warns that even if adjustment has a significant cost associated with it, it may still be cost effective in, in other terms. So, for example, compared with the cost of recruiting and training a new member of staff, the cost of a reasonable adjustment might actually be reasonable. Employees who don't make reasonable adjustments due to cost do so at their peril. Um, you know, there is support available to, for example, access to work, which would be led by the employee, but they do offer a really great support um, with regards to suggestions for adjustments and financial support that, that's available through, through contributions. And again, Gillian, it's really important to note that the duty to make reasonable adjustments is a duty on the employer, not the employee. The fact a disabled employee or their medical advisor can't identify a potential adjustment will not discharge that duty. And there has been case law on this as well. Um, And it was an employment appeal tribunal case. And they held that if the employer had turned their mind to adjustments, there were possibilities such as transfers to another office or a change in working hours that may have facilitated that individual returning to work. The fact the individual or their medical advisor couldn't think of adjustments did not discharge that responsibility. Are there any upcoming developments that employers should be aware of? There are, Gillian. Um, The government did announce their national disability strategy in 2021. However, in January 2022, the High Court ruled the strategy unlawful on the basis there had not been proper consultation before the strategy was formulated. The government has applied for permission to appeal and this is currently pending, so we'll need to watch this space. So Kat, in conclusion, do you have any top tips for employers when they're faced with the the duty to make reasonable adjustments in their workplace? Yes, I think it's really important to have clear workplace policies about how to manage the reasonable adjustment processes. It's really important as well that employers engage with employees and ask them what they need. But of course, employers should remember that employers can't place the onus on employees to come up with potential adjustments. They must be able to show that they've they have proactively considered what changes could help the employee. An employer also shouldn't impose adjustments as this could lead to a situation where an individual feels undermined or may feel that an adjustment is a demotion, for example. So if an employer engages with an individual at the outset, it's likely they will get it right. Also, I think it's really important to remember that a business should embrace a culture where our differences are our biggest strength. And that goes to the heart of the duty to make reasonable adjustments. Thanks, Kat. I think this is an area which has been a very rich vein of employment tribunal claims over recent years. And I'm sure many businesses will find the advice and guidance you've given on this podcast very useful. If you need any further support on this or other employment law issues, please feel free to contact us on 0345 844 111. 